Welcome to Nothing Never Happens, a radical pedagogy podcast. I'm Lucia Holsether, and my co-host is Tina Pippin. We've been posting a bit intermittently this last few months as we work to streamline our production processes and create new content for our listeners. But we're tapping back in now to re-release what to us is one of the most important and urgent interviews in our catalog. A conversation on the relationship between Palestine and pedagogy featuring Dina Omar. We are doing so amid the ongoing genocidal terror that the state of Israel has been unleashing on Palestinians in Gaza, as well as in Lebanon and the West Bank, since the unprecedented Hamas attacks of October 7th, in which 1,200 Israelis and international workers died and 250 people were taken hostage, with about 136 of them remaining at the time of recording. This violence is the latest escalation in decades of occupation and ethnic cleansing by Israel on the people of Palestine, including 16 years of a total blockade by Israel of the Gaza Strip. So far, since October 7th, at least 37,000 Palestinians, the majority of them women and children, have been killed by the Israeli Defense Forces. Over 2 million people in Gaza are refugees, and almost 70% of Gaza is destroyed, including homes, hospitals, universities, and institutions of faith. Meanwhile, Students who have protested U.S. complicity in these conditions, teachers who teach about Palestine or even use the word Palestine, have been subject to threats and retaliations from the institutions where they're based. Given all of this, we think it is all the more necessary to re-air this conversation with Dina Omar about Palestine and pedagogy. So now let me tell you more about Dina. She is a writer, an artist, a teacher, an anthropologist, and a poet. She studies the politics of mental health in areas of extreme surveillance, including a major body of work on how Arab young people have been psychologized and pathologized as part of, and also as an effect of, the conditions of surveillance and repression that they endure on a daily basis. Dina's orientation toward her ethnographic work, as well as her work in the classroom, comes into being through her deep rootedness in community praxis of social transformation and social justice. She is one of the founding members of Students for Justice in Palestine and of the National Network of Students for Justice in Palestine. She also spent several years as a writer and teacher and poet with June Jordan's Poetry for the People project in the Bay Area. I came to know Dina in a pro seminar that we both took when we were early PhD students at Yale working towards our certificate in the study of women, gender, and sexuality studies. 
That particular class taught by Jafari Allen became a balm for me and I think for many of the students in it, and that was in no small part because of the sensitivity and brilliance that Dina brought into the space. Not only to the kind of intellectual exchanges that we had, but also to the care and solidarities we learned to show each other. So I really just can't overstate what an honor it was when she agreed to come on Nothing Never Happens and share some of her wisdom with us. We recorded this interview originally in June 2021, which was right around the time of the Israeli attacks on the East Jerusalem neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah. Partly, but not only in response to those attacks, a group of scholars, one of whom was Dina, released a statement called Palestine and Praxis, which affirmed the Palestinian struggle as an indigenous liberation movement confronting a settler colonial state. The conversation that you're about to hear refers both to that statement as well as to the larger context of the Sheikh Jarrah attacks, which of course themselves are context for the presence. We will post that Palestine and Praxis statement in our show notes for your reference. It's worth returning to. And now let's go to the interview itself. Tina asks the first question. Thank you, Dana, for being with us on Nothing Never Happens. The first question is about the National Students for Justice in Palestine group. Could you tell us about your involvement in it, you know, how you came to be in that role, how you got involved in it, how the organization has come together at this point? Uh, Yeah, just first off, I want to say that I really very much appreciate the invitation and the opportunity to be in conversation with both of you. Uh, As Lucia said, her and I met in a seminar with Jafari Allen, who definitely set the tone for the uh, discussion. And she was telling me that, Tina, you are her mentor or were her mentor as an undergrad. And I think when I, when I'm thinking about like my organizing work or how NSJP willed itself into fruition, it seemed like this huge kind of massive endeavor that just happened. Um, It moves through a lot of different people, but I think it's definitely like a large aspect of it was um, just based based in relationships of trust, very similar to, for example, I don't typically accept invitations to speak on Palestine, mostly because there is so much sort of intimidation and repression and so on and so forth. And that's why when Lucia asked, it felt like a very... it felt, I don't necessarily think that there are safe spaces, but it felt like a safer space and like an opportunity to engage with somebody seriously that I trust. And so if I were to say, so I guess my answer to that question is, I think NSJP was very much a product of building in a very similar way, connecting with people in ways that are or organic or that you happen to know in your life building relationships of trust and finding out who you align with in terms of values and I guess also who's also being gaslit in the same way as you are. And then there's a kind of natural alliance that happens. So I would say the idea for NSJP really started to generate or or become really popular when I was an undergrad at UC Berkeley. It was actually quite astounding. I didn't start my undergrad thinking that I wanted to be a Palestinian. I thought I wanted to go into law or something, but I was really taken aback and quite surprised about how 
disconnected the language and the representation of Palestine and like news coverage of Palestine, not just news because you anticipate the news coverage being skewed or biased or so on and so forth. But also like in the academy, the extent to which Palestinian narratives and Palestinian perspectives were systematically erased or discredited or under siege. And also around that time, there was, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the Irvine 11 case. In, at UC Irvine, there were 11 students who were arrested for disrupting ambassador that came to speak at the university. There were also a bunch of cases where the Department of Education was investigating various university campuses for supposed or alleged cultivating atmospheres of anti-Semitism and so on and so forth. And you saw a lot of student organizers who were either Students for Justice in Palestine, but also Muslim Students Association and other sort of student organizations really being targeted in a very scary way. And so just to give you a kind of example, for one of these Title VI investigation cases, they cited Students for Justice in Palestine at UC Berkeley, which is a local chapter, along with the Muslim Students Association, along with a bunch of other sort of organizations. And they made this crazy connection between those students and terrorist organizations in the Middle East, saying that we were connected to Hamas and to Hezbollah and all of these things. And A, not only are these things completely fabricated lies, but they had like devastating uh, effects on people's, you know, lives, their futures, their perceptions of themselves. I just remember, for example, one close friend who was cited in the Title VI investigation case. If you ever talk to him, you'll, it becomes very clear that he's like a staunch atheist, very anti-religion, very interesting to talk to, right? But then in the Title VI investigation case, it cites him as being a Muslim extremist who has ties to Muslim extremist organizations in the Middle East. So I guess, so that's a kind of like personal or idiosyncratic explanation, but that's just one example of when I started and when I thought about, when we started thinking about establishing an SJP, but take that and multiply it by who knows how much. And it gives you a kind of understanding as to the reason why NSJP was needed. Yeah, in terms of my involvement with National Students for Justice in Palestine, um, I thought when we started it, it was going to be a kind of small endeavor, kind of small grassroots, um, student-based organizing thing. And the interest was massive. The interest is still massive. People are incredibly interested. And I think there, it's like one of these things where it's the silent majority. You just have so much interest, so many people like reaching out and wanting to help, but you just didn't have the sort of infrastructure or the organizational sort of, I don't know, direction. And I think in that sense, NSJP filled a void when it came to responding to just the way in which there, the extent of the gaslighting and the extent of the yeah, confusion about representing Palestinians in a way that's, I think, authentic, not authentic, but uh, does justice to their experience. And the other thing I was going to say about all of this, too, is around that time when I was at UC Berkeley, a lot of what was in vogue or trendy was reading biographies from the new historians in Israel. This is like in quotes, the new historians. 
And so at UC Berkeley, the first class I took about Palestine was with this historian named Tom, Tom Seget. And this is a kind of paradigm or a historical paradigm, which very much focuses on Israeli, um, the Israeli perspective of having to, like, like the distress of having to colonize this land, the kind of axiom of shoot first, cry later. And it's just, it's A, representationally and epistemically incredibly violent to be in that kind of position. Like just imagine being a Palestinian student in a class on Israel and Palestine, listening to an Israeli historian talk about how difficult it was for Israelis to colonize the colonized Palestine. And so that was like the beginning of UC, my UC Berkeley experience. And then my, the end of my UC Berkeley experience was the 2008-2009 incursion or massacre of Gaza. And I just remember, and I think a lot of people were in the same position, just being completely like taken aback by the fact that thousands of people could be killed within the matter of weeks, but then you can't even say the word Palestine or Palestinians in the public sphere. And I think that concern or that red flag was really what brought students together under the same sort of, or like orienting people in the same sort of direction when it came to Israel and Palestine. One of the things, I have another question for you, but like, what is, since this is a conversation, I'm just like, one of the things I was thinking about is like this historical moment. And this is partly what I think, Tina, you were there when I was going through this and experience learning these critiques in college. But that kind of historical moment was a sort of new wave of interfaith organizing on college campuses, which was often talk talking in this sort of like liberal, neoliberal, multicultural language of religious conflict and like, why can't Jews and Muslims and Christians get along? And a, one of the main organizations um, that was pushing interfaith chapters on college campuses and frankly, and continues to, is the Interfaith Youth Corps, which was getting money from Zionist organizations and get it, creating these college chapters to depoliticize, size politically defang. And I think in the language, I think that Dina, you just used and have used in other contexts that is often used when we talk about Palestine, put under erasure the Palestinian struggle and make it this sort of abstracted out. This is a difference in religious belief. And why can't extremists stop politicizing their religions. And so I think like for me, as I'm listening to you talk about the context for founding in SJP, like one, the kind of interfaithy stuff seems like part of that gaslighting and narrativizing of, oh, is, isn't it hard to be colonizing somebody? Or religion is the cause of this, not Lanzo, not racism, not colonization, not occupation. But then also that there's another side of this where there was this kind of, I'm going to call it state building in like interfaithy state building in the in state as a term for kind of power and like student chapters and organizers that I think really existed alongside and maybe continue to exist alongside some of the Zionist organizations on college campuses. I don't know if that would, that sounds right to you, Dina, but it occurred to me. Yeah, absolutely. When you're faith-based sort of organizing was definitely, I, I think, something that NSJ, I could at least speak for SJP at UC Berkeley, is something a lot of the student organizers were very annoyed with because essentially a lot of us felt like we were being tokenized when being asked to represent their faith 
I think a lot of Palestinian Christians actually mostly feel tokenized in those kinds of settings because they have they have to represent a kind of religious there's also a lot of money that's involved in sort of religious faith-based organizing around Palestine from like seed the peace to there there's just a lot and it's interesting because you can examine it as something to participate in or you can examine it as some as um another realm for which the parameters of acceptable speech are very narrow. Um, and so I've been asked many on many occasions to represent Muslims, but the whole paradigm, um, I think, is very, it, it tries to measure the wrong thing, where it's pointing to, in general, and maybe we can talk about this more later, but it's very difficult to have conversation, frank conversations about Palestine because it feels like so much is overdetermined from the outside. And so much of these, what is overdetermined is at the service of Israeli colonization. So it's helpful for Israeli colonization to think about this as a religious um, conflict, right? As opposed to a systematic erasure colonization. And I, I would say that the main, Israel is using eliminatory violence um, and, and anything and and suggesting anything less, suggesting that this may be some sort of intrinsic thing about somebody's religion is, I think it also confuses people from those faiths, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. It not confuses, but then like creates a sort of material artifices of that confusion where all of a sudden Christian groups are like, we need to go to Palestine to understand this religious conflict. And it's, no, you don't actually, you don't actually, here's some books you create. Anyway. Well, another round of uh, gaslighting. Yeah, right? gaslighting. Okay. I'm going to ask you another question. I'm sure we'll circle back around to all of this. So tell us about June Jordan's poetry for the people. I know it's for those who don't know Dina. It's really hard to have a conversation with Dina about her life and influences without this coming up. And that's a great thing. So talk to us about talk to us about what poetry for the people is what you were doing with it. And then I think the sort of medium term question, which I think we'll get to pretty easily, is how does this come together with your NSJP and Palestine freedom organizing mm -hmm. stuff? Yeah, thank you so much for asking that question because you're absolutely right. I think it was probably one of the most formative experiences of my life. And when I think about it, June Jordan's Poetry for the People program, that is. When I think about it, it very much informed the way NSJP ended up being organized. So June Jordan, Jordan's Poetry for the People program is a, I don't know how it's organized now, but when I was involved in it, it was a class of 100 people where you would explore the historical experiences of um, immigrant and marginalized communities in the United States through the rigorous study of their poetic traditions. And so it would start out as a class of 100, and then it would break off into groups of 10. And then in those groups of 10, you would have these writing workshops. And everything was, and the people who were organizing the class or more or less in charge of the curriculum were students themselves or former students. And so it was much more horizontal. And I think the biggest sort of contribution of June Jordan's Poetry for the People program in terms of changing me or affecting my life is just teaching me how to be a close reader and teaching me how, what is a euphemism? Why is a euphemism? used in a particular context, you know, how, what language is used to obscure versus what language is used to clarify. 
and having it be a class about poetics and poetry, it, it encourages you to think about everything that way from like news to scholarly articles to maps. It's just a lesson in close reading and paying attention. And I think, again, along with along the lines of the faith-based organizing and stuff like that, I think it was incredibly important at that time for me to be immersed in June Jordan's poetry for the People program and also be trying to understand this thing about my homeland. Why is there such a disconnect between the sort of representational facts about Israel and Palestine in, or Palestine in the United States and then what I know to be true from Arabic news outlets or from family members or from the news that I'm getting from close from family connected community there. The only other thing that I would say is that in the mid-90s, June Jordan was very uh, forthright about saying that she thinks that, the, that there are two sort of moral litmus tests in the world um, in terms of thinking about questions of power and inequality in the world. And that's the question of um, the treatment of LGBTQ non-binary people and the question of Palestine. And I don't think that it was... She, she just happened to say that, those kinds of things. I think she's deeply invested and thinking very critically about the access of those two trends or ideas. Yeah, I want to go a little bit further with that. And I take notes while we do this. That's what I'm doing so that I mark it when I listen to it again. So in the Palestine and Praxis document, mm-hmm. uh, there's some great statements in there about how we can, as teachers, not just in higher ed, but particularly there, think about these things that you're talking about. And those two axes, how June Jordan connects the dots. One of them is, one of the commitments is highlighting Palestinian scholarship on Palestine in syllabi or writing and through invitation of Palestinian scholars and community members to speak at departmental and university events. And, oh, there's so much in here. Anyway, another one is centering indigenous analyses and teaching and drawing links to intersectional oppression and Mm -hmm. national liberation movements. Um, In our research, we will actively include Palestine as a space and place worthy of substantive and historical integration into critical theory, not only as a case in a list of colonial examples. Oh, some... I would uh, like to tell us about how do you, in your classroom, um, engage Palestine, elevate these voices, um, stop the colonizers in their tracks? What kind of concrete examples do you have for ways that are exemplary for us to really be doing justice with Palestinians? Yeah, thank you for that question as well. I think the question of pedagogy is so important. And I think it's also very much, at least in my mind, related to my experience with the June Jordan Poetry for the People program, but also just in general as like a critical thinker. I actually think in my experience, just because there tends to be a great deal of baggage talking about Palestine, um, that I tend to be very uh, reserved about uh, getting too deep into it with my students. And instead, I point people into what I view as the right direction because it's a completely, it's a completely different experience speaking to a Palestinian who, or, or just uh, a scholar or an, a, a person who is 
physically present and materially affected and grappling with and dealing with the details of, of something. Something is an abstraction of the eliminatory violence of the psychological warfare of the ongoing colonization and ongoing NECFA of the ongoing sort of generational trauma and just having, just being attuned to those sorts of dimensions uh, really affects what people see and really affects what you encourage students to look at. Reading a Washington Post article that abstracts, for example, the dispossession of Palestinian families in Sheikh Jarrah or the impending dispossession of Palestinian families in Sheikh Jarrah is very different than speaking to somebody whose neighbor, who they talk to on a regular basis, whom they know, you know, what they have for dinner every once in a while, whom they walk down the street with every once in a while, who they can go and get a cup of sugar from next door. I don't know. Um, it, 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 it's a very different um, orientation and perspective is all I'm trying to say. And so I think um, in terms of the praxis letter, what I think the authors were suggesting is that as scholars who are interested and invested in intellectual integrity and in the peer review process, that we shouldn't allow the abstractions that are meant to uh, mislead or meant to misdirect or meant to deliberately distract from the facts on the ground, from the ongoing eliminatory violence. And the other thing about the Praxis Letter that I think is very important is that I think up until very recently, and this isn't just about the Palestine Praxis Letter, this is like about what that letter is doing in a whole cosmology of things, right? So when that letter was released, you had families in Sheikh Jarrah who literally have extremist settlers that have occupied half of their home and are chanting death to Arabs in the streets outside of their homes. Just yesterday, or the day before yesterday, the court ruled that the families can temporarily stay in their homes, but then they have to pay rent to the settler organizations. So just giving you a kind of... So that's just north of the old city of Jerusalem. Just south of the old city of Jerusalem is uh, Silwan, which is another Palestinian neighborhood where they've... where. There are military orders to demolish over a hundred homes and businesses. And a, a friend of mine, Diana Shamas, did a talk with the Palestine Studies Center at Columbia University, where she interviewed many of the families that in Siloan. And these families have to pay for their, the demolition of their own home, for example. And they're being charged. Then you also have various villages throughout the West Bank. For example, it, it, like around the Nablus uh, government, you have the villages of Batia and um, Akraba uh, that are where Israeli settler expansion is impending and these um, villages are under attack. You also have El Walajja, which is another village that may be that is under threat. Then also when Palestinian Praxis was released, you had Israel literally drum Palestinian homes. So that's just to give you uh, an idea of how dynamic the map is in terms of Palestinian territory and what's going on there. And that's just the, the beginning of it, right? We haven't even talked about the checkpoints. We haven't even talked about the sort of apartheid road system, 
the huge wall, all of these things. And so what we're trying to say, I think, with the Palestine Praxis letter is, and I just saying we just because I was somewhat a part of uh, editing it, is that calling this natural or calling this just like an ethnic dispute or calling this a religious conflict is not just an abstraction. It's not just mean or whatever. It's part of that eliminatory logic. There's a reason why we can't say the word Palestine in classrooms and Israeli settlers are chanting death to Arabs outside of people's homes in which they're going to um, take over. There's a connection and we need to start taking that connection seriously. That impunity is allowed because we are using uh, language that absolves people of responsibility or having to, to look at their actual actions, like the totality of and the consequences. of. I don't yeah, know. I think that's really well said. And I, I feel torn about two different two different routes to take this. Or maybe that you can think of, you probably can think of many others. But I'll just throw out the two questions that I think might be good to ask now. And they're connected. The first is whether you have whether you have any kind of examples or sort of interactions or sort of moments where you've seen that can like you've found a way to make that connection in a really lucid way with a student who hadn't seen it before or with or like a framework to set up to make that possible and I can talk about ways that I try to do that or like we can maybe all have a discussion about that sort of we talked on the phone before this conversation about like organizing around freedom for Palestine is a question of pedagogy because what when you how do you enter into any kind of interaction any kind of like world making project when words don't mean what you think they mean and you can't say certain words and because it's off limits so I think that like thinking concretely together about what does it look like to interrupt that and the other question that I think is related to this is how have you tried and your can you tell us a little bit about your book that you're writing on mental health and under surveillance and how in your practices of ethnographic representation and reflection, you're trying to break the sort of narratives of erasure um, and elimination? Yeah, those are very good questions. And I'm also really interested to hear how you both having, Tina's been to Palestine, but having Palestinian colleagues and also being just like it seems like critical thinkers and, and, and very invested in critical pedagogy in general, I'd be very interested to see how you all are navigating this as well. I would say it's a little difficult because like my experience and the things that I'm seeing on a regular basis is uh, are very personal. They're very idiosyncratic. They're very, like I said, that having a whole family, four generations of a family have a bomb dropped on their house and having them no longer exist and having that family being a close family, like a close family of mine or whatever. I, in the classroom, I don't say those kinds of things, right? But um, you have to point to examples. I think also literature is very helpful. Again, this is going back to poetry for the people, mediated forms of expression mediated forms of of expression from people who've actually experienced it, I think is very 
has been very helpful for me in terms of teaching, but I also feel like it's a way for to amplify and uplift Palestinian voices outside of a kind of paradigm that assumes that you're helping them. Uh, because if anything, I think that the uh, power disparity is so vast and so great that even in um, the process of being eliminated, Palestinian people are gracious enough to be teachers in such a profound way. And that's like another aspect of all of this too, is I was part of working with the Palestine Museum in Woodbridge, Connecticut, which is this sort of small, sweet museum right near Yale, thankfully for me. But just encountering Palestinian art, encountering Palestinian literature and poetry, being invested in it, being invested in assigning it, I think has been it's not just relevant to Palestine, but it's relevant to so many questions of power at stake in the world. Yeah, whether it's, and there are also so many ways in which teaching Palestine is about these larger thresholds of inequality and power disparities. For example, the, and this is also another way that BDS comes in, the bombs that were dropped in Gaza during the 11-day attack uh, just two months ago were, uh, for example, Boeing bombs. They were manufactured by Boeing. So I, I get the, the sense that when you're engaging with Palestinian literature and you're engaging with what Palestinians are asking you to pay attention to, and this would be the BDS call, they would be asking you to really contend with um, the ways in which our economies and our lifestyles are enmeshed, imbricated in perpetuating these fault lines of inequality and oppression. And that's not just a question about Palestine, right? But that's a global question. And it's also a question about our own self-awareness. So I think that answers your question. <laughs> oh, and then about the manuscript, sorry. The manuscript, all I'll say, I don't have too much to say about my manuscript because I'm still working it out and it's <laughs> really hard. But I will say that it's really difficult to write, but it's very empowering to think about the ways in which Instead of explaining something well, like ad nauseum, to make writerly decisions about world making. And I've done that based on how I've encountered the erasure of Palestine, right? You will not read a kind, you will not read a book that says Palestine, that's peer reviewed and stuff like that, that doesn't, that, that falls outside of a particular like niche. So making certain decisions, like, do I call this? Israel slash Palestine? Do I call it Israel and the Palestinian territories? Do I call it Israel and the Arab territories and so on and so forth? But sort of knowing all of those options and deliberating what the value is of each one of them and then making those decisions yourself, I think has been an incredibly empower empowering experience. I don't know whether or not that means that I'm never going to get published or I'm never going to get a job or anything like that, but it does mean that I've been very it's been a very instructive process to think about the sovereignty of writing or, or to think about the, your own power in terms of what you could do with your writing and the writerly decisions that you can make to, yeah, to get people to use the same language as you, I think is, a, I feel like it's been magical. Yeah, I think that, and also, also the decisions about what am I, what language am I refusing? That sometimes it's what you don't say or like how you're not saying something that is creating a. Absolutely. I mean, I think some consensus that maybe a reader didn't even know was there until. 
Absolutely. So I think maybe one of the things that your question evokes for me is I think a lot of what I was trying to do in the manuscript was suggest that things are much more terrible than you could ever imagine for what, in terms of what Palestinians are experiencing. But I, w- I didn't go there and I don't want to go there. And it's a very deliberate not wanting to go there. And instead, I do want to go there with other things. But I think that the kind of social suffering paradigm has been exhausted in this context. And so I feel like uh, new or uh, younger Palestinian scholars or people who are interested in uh, the Palestine question are trying to shift gears a bit. Yeah, I think the reason I put the question, those two questions together about pedagogical praxis plus like narratives is that I think in case this wasn't clear to listeners already, the answer to eliminatory violence and Palestine as a field of knowledge being put under erasure is not tokenistic representation for liberal vampires who want to bear witness to another's suffering. Is that correct? You didn't know, like... Yeah. <laughs> okay. Great. Correct. And so I'm thinking about the sort of commitments in the Praxis letter and everything around it. What the signatory, like what what is being asked of signatories, is not to show some pictures of Palestinian children who have been psychologized. It's to design curricula and pedagogies that are grounded in indigenous studies framework that maybe begin the term by asking students to reflect on like how do you know that this is the land of the people who say it's their land like how what does it mean to reflect on a built environment what is occupation and to be able to have a kind of almost scaffolding available to bring to bear on any number of examples or questions or experiences so that this isn't a kind of like a sort of Palestine exceptionalism. So what I was going to say is that I teach this class called American Gods, which is a sort of intro to religions of the Americas. And we start, we we have three different units and we start over it chronologically each time. The first one being, okay, so an indigenous studies narrative of so-called mm-hmm. American religion a Black studies, multivocal narrative, a kind of immigrant and labor narrative that circles back each time that we can layer on. And what becomes clear is that the whose nation it is, what sort of what an American religion has becomes a set of power plays about who has the power of assertion, who has the kind of ideology that they're able to install and what are the breaks in that we can see and find and try to stretch out. So this is a question about Palestine and indigenous knowledges and theories as framework so that a student, even if, especially as a teacher who has direct experience stakes in and connection to the just mm-hmm. violence, isn't being asked to tokenize themselves, but rather that there's a yeah, there, there's a foundation to be able to ask those questions. Is that, I'm now rambling, but does that sound right? Absolutely. It's actually very helpful for you to hear, for me to hear that coming from you, because I think that's true. It, it is about, quite frankly, power. And in certain ways, so much power and violence. And this is, again, in terms of pedagogy, questioning the category of violence as a standalone analytical category. Is violence just brute violence that Israeli police or Israeli military are exercising against people in Sheikh Jarrah? 
that is a form of violence and a form of brute power. But then there are other forms of power. So, so rather than being completely intimidated by that awesome display of violence that is meant to intimidate, you instead, or at least for me, instead think about how do I, in any interview, in any setting, put Sheikh Jarrah next to Lid, next to Gaza, next to Batia and Akraba, next to Fahim, where two people were just killed, next to Ramallah, the protests that were, that the PA was violent, like people who were protesting the, the PA, they were violently um, manhandled. And one person, uh, Nazar Banat, was killed uh, next to uh, the hallways of Yale University to say that all of this is eliminatory violence against Palestinians and Palestine is one place and we're all one people. And that's a response, that's a kind of political response to the kind of ongoing fragmentation, the kind of ongoing violence. Um, yeah. And those small decisions that you make are all very consequential. And I think students uh, who are paying attention or anybody who's paying attention will pick up on those things. Yeah, to go back to June Jordan uh, and Poetry for the People, uh, she calls it a revolutionary blueprint. Mm -hmm. So you're, you've laid out for us your revolutionary blueprint. And how do you do that in terms of syllabi and not just class mechanics, but, but things that you have students engage with and how you engage students in the classroom? You said a bit, but if you could go uh, some further. That's actually a really good question, mostly because, like, I've never actually taught a class on Palestine. I've been to three different university campuses. I, I did, actually, at Berkeley, I, I taught a class called uh, The Psychological Effects of Military Occupation, but it wasn't specific to Palestine. Um, so I don't know the answer to that question yet, but I do know that whatever it would be to, to take, to understand the question of Palestine is not exceptional but as part of and an effect of larger trends about that are related to surveillance, that are related to disinformation campaigns, that are related to colonization and indigenous practices, embodied knowledge. How is embodied knowledge acquired and taught? Those kinds of questions, I think, are not just in the context of Palestinian studies. Although Palestinian studies, I feel like it's this amazing repository and resource of just in terms of like grassroots mobilizing efforts, in terms of clarity of language and stuff like that, such as it's a rich archive and place that I feel like people aren't paying enough attention to. But that's all I would say in terms of how. And then another thing I would say, sorry, just one last thing is aside from my direct relationship with students, it's also just my direct relationship with everybody. I find the kind of pleasantries of like small talk and like your commute to work or something to be really annoying. And so any person that I have a relationship with, it's going to be one that's dynamic, could be adversarial, could be about debate. It's also about opening up a debate and a discussion and creating a culture where people are not tiptoeing around issues, but addressing them head on. So it's more like a disposition, I think, as much as it is a kind of uh, classroom uh, ethos or classroom thing. If I can give just a quick example, four miles from my house is a program at Georgia State University where 
the connection between the Israeli defense forces, Israeli military, and Black Lives Matter come together because the Israeli military is training Georgia police officers in surveillance tactics. And so it's right here. It's not just over there. And the the shootings in Atlanta of uh, Black men in particular. So it's all, as you said, wives. Um, it's not just this one thing. It's got too many connectors, I think. But it's important to note. But no one knows about that program. Mm-hmm. So you have to speak it into existence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that absolutely, that's a great point. And I think that's where a lot of questions about and criticisms against BDS come in. When I think about BDS, I think about just opening up the debate to dimensions that people don't want you to notice. For example, when I was at UC Berkeley and in the Jordan Poetry for the People program, when Gaza was being bombed, it was um, also when Oscar Grant was shot at the Fruitvale station in, in Oakland. And what I mean about like generational trauma and all is it sometimes feels the celluloid flame that just goes over and over again, doing the same scene over and over again. And all of like the ways in which the Israeli sort of security industry is outsourced in the United States um, is not, j- it's not just that they're, that they're experimenting on Palestinians or refining these tactics on Palestinian mo- in quotes mobs and stuff like that. It's that it's, um, it's an industry. Like, so you're right. The Israeli, um, uh, I'm not exactly sure what the connection is, but there is some sort of connection between the Israeli police force and police forces in the United States in terms of training. Um, then there are also all of these uh, private security firms like uh, Black Cube, for example, or uh, Site Group, um, which are um, uh, private security firms that ex-Mossad agents or ex-Shin uh, agents or something like that come to the United States and think it's a good idea to provide these kinds of services and stuff like that. You not only see this as manifesting in terms of gaslighting and intimidating and creating campaigns that target and silence Palestinian and Arab and probably Muslim scholars, but also everybody. Harvey Weinstein, for example, solicited the or hired Black Cube for his whole cover-up campaign. So the so these kinds of things have implications far beyond just Palestinians. When you were, I get the sense that sometimes the paradigm of solidarity is a little tired because I think reframing things along the lines of mutual aid, reciprocity, protection, and safety of one another is probably more accurate. Yeah. And I feel like, I don't know, tell me if this is wrong, but I'm trying to bring some of this together and then we'll ask our our last question. But there are probably like any number of examples that one could marshal of collaboration between sort of U.S. police and Israeli occupation forces. We could come up. There are a lot of examples that people have marshaled that we can marshal. And in some ways, what one of the one of the one of the pedagogical concerns is that for 
a lot of reasons that have to do with ideology. No matter how many examples one brings up, they be, they have been made unseeable or un unsayable. And what I hear your answer being to the sort of the how do you organize the syllabus question is n- not about examples, but about what what lenses what lenses what lens correction does a student need when they are looking at the front page of the New York Times and see in an FAQ about is BDS anti-Semitic? How do you how does someone learn to read? And I think that goes back to the kind of conversation we were having real much earlier about okay, what is what does the work of liberation entail? How does one learn that by reading rigorously and reckoning with rigorously the poetic traditions of mm of marginalized people and and writing traditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I also get the sense that, I mean, it's really difficult to not be cynical, especially considering the kind of heightened, amplified, intense violence that we're seeing right now. But I think the one thing that really gives me a great deal of encouragement is that there's no reversing that. Whatever students you have, they're going to go off and they're going to be in their respective fields. And I just, it it brings me some peace to know that more aware or more literate people will be in positions of power not too far from now. And they're going to be the ones that are questioning like, oh, why is Boeing, why is the um, CFO of Boeing or something getting a bonus on this day? Or why do we... Why does the United States think that it's not symbolically charged to, within an appropriations bill, gift Israel $3.8 billion while bombs are falling on Gaza? Why does this commentator in, on the sort of on primetime television ask this person who is talking about some random thing related to Palestine, whether or not they love, support Hamas, that once you start seeing the extent of all of these controlling processes, there's no unseeing them. And it, again, like I said before, it, Palestine is a kind of microcosm and it's a very good example, but it is absolutely not exceptional. And so that's one thing that I think is special about teaching and focusing on Palestine. Yeah, that I think that's a really important as we think with you and try to think with many of our guests and listeners about what it would what would it mean to be a teacher who affirms and lives out the commitments in the praxis letter as just as one of many examples of movement building and world making and campaigns that are ongoing i think that keeping that in mind that not an exception as soon as a teacher no matter how aligned in their own heads that they Mm -hmm. they think they are with the sort of palestinian freedom struggle start like doing the sort of fetishized suffering narratives or exceptional examples, that is actually not, that is going against the grain of the mm-hmm. kind of statement and praxis that, that, that I think you and many others have invited us into. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're almost to our last, qu- I think we, we've, we've been like talking for almost an hour now. Anything before we ask our last question, I'm going to let Tina ask the last question, our standard question. Anything else we haven't asked? that you want to say or that we haven't that we haven't covered or that you wish we would ask not particularly but that you want to ask us 
Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't say that there's anything in particular other than maybe there's one question that I would like to ask you guys. And this is going to be a kind of roundabout way of saying it. But one thing that I'm concerned with recently is institution building and um, making space. Just because I get the sense that all of the spaces that we create and cultivate to hold uh, uh, vigils or to mobilize seems to be examined and then somehow under attack and things like that. And I just want to know maybe for each of you uh, what what spaces you find to be the most educational or nurturing when it comes to praxis. Is it the classroom or is it somewhere else? Tina, you go first. Because <laughs> I'm still like that, it. That's, a, that's an amazing question. I think it is it's in the classroom, but taking students out of the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm part of a living wage campaign that Lucia was also part of and building coalitions with local human rights groups, but especially with our hourly staff who are paid poverty wages and hearing those stories. The same as you're talking about teaching about Palestine and I read the uh, Palestine Praxis Statement, I think, oh, how do I not do fall into the the liberal vampirism trap. And the way to do that is to be places Mm -hmm. and put myself out there where I can get called on it and corrected and, and hear those stories. And being in Atlanta, I, there, there's a lot here. Uh, Yeah. I think it's getting, putting oneself out there, taking risks. What kind of risk really? I've got so much privilege here. But and making connections and doing the work. I got to work. Helpful to hear. Yeah, I think part of me is stumbling on this question, I think, because I feel like I just know what I think about a lot. I think we've been through a year where there hasn't been a lot of in-person connections and I just moved to a new place. So I feel like I had, you're asking me that question a moment where I'm searching for what I imagine to be or I feel to be most helpful to me as a really embodied space. I think what the thing that I that comes to mind, and now I'm just going to talk out loud for a minute, is that my friend, Amoria, sometimes said, I didn't know we were talking about something. Somebody had done something fucked up. Excuse my language. Um, we'll put this on the explicit <laughs> podcast. And they were a white person. And she said, like, more white people need to fail. Because that means take, taking a risk. Like there, I think there's a lot of caution or more, more like being willing to or like being in this sort of risky, messy space and maybe more white and more people doing take, taking risks about their own maybe job security, maybe their own relationships or like the peaceful, like kind of veneer that gets glossed over a sort of comfortable, privatized life and being willing to fail that, but also being willing to be open to what happens when, when that breaks, whether that means as a professor, not capitulating to the propaganda that tells me not to talk about Palestine in my classes because I might not get tenure or and to think about, well, that's like such a low cost for me. And to, I think, to constantly be checking my own forms of retreat 
and to be in spaces that do that for me. And I didn't think like the most concrete example that I actually haven't been writing a lot about this. I haven't been like in it for a while, but I think about some of the like kind of lefty organizations, the union coalition in New Haven as a kind of leftist coalition that was constantly messing up within itself where there were power struggles within it, within the communities. But how do we be a democratic organization? How do we model the world we wish to see? How do we like enact a kind of liberating pedagogy among ourselves in our organizing relationships in our classrooms that doesn't reproduce the very power, i.e. Yale's kind of billionaire corporation that we are trying to contest. And I think that the kind of interplay between what does it mean to transform the institution that we're all part of while also reforming constantly within these relationships that we, and these ideals that we're constantly falling short of, I think broken movement organizations are the place to do it. Um, Especially when you are with a group of people, or for me, it's been when I'm with a group of people who are constantly aware of our own perpetual falling short, our perpetual embeddedness within structures that are going to cause us to be Mm -hmm. all kinds of violence to one another. Anyway, so when I I said about the fail, being willing to fail more often, I think that's another way of saying that being in organizations that are really broken and trying to figure out like how do we become aware of that and then try to correct it and then fail again. And then, and for me, union organizing has been one of those things, but then I think there are any number of places, there are churches, there are community gardens, there are classrooms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does that, I know that was a random answer. That's amazing to hear. Yeah. It really makes me think about both of your sort of comments makes me think about, I think sometimes there's this, because it really is a spectacular story, the story of Palestinian mobilization worldwide. But there can, there tends to be a kind of fetishization of, oh my God, look at how great they're organizing. But I agree with you that, (laughs) that it's messy and it's both internal dynamics and then pressure from the outside makes like those kinds of organizing spaces really hard but doesn't but that's also probably some of the most intellectually rigorous and in instructive work that I've ever done both grappling with internal criticisms and internal dynamics and structure questions that are incredibly relevant and important and uh, pertinent as well as internal criticisms from that come from bad faith or direct infiltration from the FBI or smear campaigns from the outside or whatever. So I think holding your ground and trying to hold on to reality while also being um, open to growth and failure and change has been the only way I think I've gotten this far. And I, yeah, I sense that's what both of you were also saying. So I appreciate your answers. Okay. The time is, is nigh. <laughs> we've talked for a very long time. This is wonderful. But we often end our episodes by inviting our guests to share what you are watching, ingesting, listening to, consuming that you um, are inspired by that you'd like to tell others about. Yeah, I will just say I had this book recommended to me from somebody else who was also part of the Palestine in Praxis letter, drafting it. It's called Wondrous Journeys in a Strange Land by Sonia Nimmer. 
and it's it's a novel based on Palestinian folklore. Uh, Sonia Nimid was a professor of mine in 2006 when I went to study at Birzeit. And it's when, when I think about the way the question of Palestine is unfolding in the public sphere at this moment, I would hope that it's not a Greek tragedy, but instead a Palestinian folkloric tale. And that has so many sort of implications in it and stuff like that. And that's what I would recommend people to read. It's And the reason why I would also recommend it is because it's a very Palestinian story, very tied to the biblical history of Palestine, but it's also just a light, sweet, easy read. So it's been keeping me afloat over the last few weeks. Thank you. Thank you, Dina. Thank you for listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast and our interview with Dina Omar of Yale University on teaching Palestine in higher education. My co-producer and co-host, Lucia Holsether, and I would like to acknowledge our audio editor and engineer, Aliyah Harris. Our intro music and theme music is by Lance Eric Hagen, performed by Lance Eric Hagen with Aviva and the Flying Penguins. Our outro music is by Acrasis, and it's called Hemlock Head off the Unemployed Apologist album. Max Bowen raps and Mark McKee beats, available on bandcamp.com. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can sponsor us at our new Patreon account, patreon at patreon.org slash radpedagogy. Thank you for your support. Head full of blood and recent broom in my bed for another person. Sure, why are you but I might try to ride to the possibility that I might be cool enough not to ride you. Let's fly into a sighing room whenever I'd know that there's no reason to. Shifts in symptoms masking a lack of wisdom. When I'm alone, I prana the skies to hide behind obscure the facts that absence works everything. The world's selves, but I'm so full of myself and therefore empty. Significance nothing signifies anything except for what I signify that you. The symbolic language of my word is 
relatable or true. Giving people clues, swap metaphysical shoes, feet, hop, both with cracks in the concrete, sidewalk, silver, the grass grows in our leaves, the blocks of fox, grass grows, same, same, ever did, the twelve the same as it ever did, grass grows, same as it ever did, wind blows, same, 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 and can't describe the sameness because description requires difference, maybe perceiving unity is a matter of maturity of inference. Head, blood, poison, ruin, my bed, throwing gravel, person, not slow, fly, or cool, but I like crying with pessimists. I like to be cool enough not to lie to you. Lying to a saying, whenever I know there's no reason to. Head, blood, and poison. You're in my head, full of the person.